0: Let's open together now our Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 2. We are continuing on in our study of this book. And you've noticed, I trust, that, uh, that Esther is, is a little different than the book of Romans. We have been uh, taking large chunks of this book, whereas in Romans, we were if we had three verses, it felt like an awful lot to be tackling all at once Uh, We're going to be looking at 18 verses this morning. Uh, And so once you have found that, if you would, if you are able, stand together in honor of the word of God. We will read now the word of God together from the book of Esther, chapter two, beginning in verse one. After these things, when the King Ahasuerus, the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins into the harem in Susa, the citadel under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, named Mordecai, the son of Jair, the uh, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And The young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz the king's eunuch, Who was in charge of the concubines? She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the 7th year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins, so that he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. We pray, God, that by your spirit, working through your word, you would lift our eyes to behold Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would transform our hearts into the likeness of Christ. We pray even this morning, Lord, boldly, that blind eyes would be made to see and deaf ears made to hear, that the hearts that are dead in sin would be called to life by this Savior. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Men, you can be seated. Well, what a story. This passage is the Bible Cinderella story. A a beautiful Christian Disney princess fairy tale featuring a beauty pageant where the innocent church girl wins. Impressing everyone with her winning smile and her purity. Esther is is the perfect example for little girls everywhere. That is usually how this story gets talked about. The story of... Esther, nothing could be further from the truth in this scene as we look at it. In fact, my my favorite Esther commentary uh, titles its 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 heading for this passage of scripture is like Cinderella only seedier. It's a pretty good heading. Uh, That's what we see going on here. Esther too is in fact not overflowing with romance. It is actually dark. It is a rather uncomfortable story. Women are objectified. They are treated as commodities by a predatory man. A man who, who we can see it play out in this story, but history tells us, thought of himself as a god. Who victimizes a very large group of women in this story and in this passage. Even the good guys in this story and in this passage... For them, fear seems like more powerful a motivator than faith. Their, Their actions are morally ambiguous at best, and really they're not that ambiguous. They are sinful. And yet in the midst of all of this sin, in the midst of all of this suffering, in the midst of morally questionable actions and outright sinful actions, we are invited to trace the fingertips of a sovereign God who is working in all of it, And he is working through all of it. He is working even through the suffering. He is working even through the sin to accomplish his good purposes. This is no fairy tale of a poor Jewish girl falling in love with a dashing, charming prince. It is a real world story where things are messy at best. Things are broken. Esther's life is not a model for us of godly Perfection. One of the great things about this story is Our lives are not exactly the model of great and godly perfection either We live in a broken, fallen world We live in a world that where, where there is sin that we've committed And we're dealing with the consequences of that Things that we've done, transgressions We live in a world of, of, of sin that has been committed against us And we're dealing with the consequences of that. Or sin that perhaps has not been committed against us, but we just are dealing with the effects of sin that other people have committed. We live in a world where we have to deal with the simple results of sin. We live in a fallen world. And so there is disease and there is disasters. There are car accidents, you name it. You go down the list. It's the the results of living in a fallen world. And here's what Esther invites us to see. God is using all of it for his good purposes. None of it is wasted. God is not confounded when tragedy comes our way. God is not confounded when sorrow comes our way or even when sin happens around us or because of us. God has a word for us in all of it. He has a word for the abused, but he's also got a word for abusers. He's got a word for the naive, but he's also got a word for the cynical and unbelieving. The gospel is a real world gospel and it works even in the darkest realities of our lives. And, and Esther too gives us a, a powerful example of that. As bleak as this story is, and maybe so far as we've read it, you're not, it doesn't seem that bleak. As bleak as this story is, and as we will see that it is, it offers us the invincible hope that God's eternal purposes will stand. He's working through all the events of our lives. He is working through the good. He's working through the bad. He is working even through our own sin. And so look at this passage as we see these glorious truths about this God. Verse one says, after these things, well, after what things? Well, the events of chapter one, a drunken King Ahasuerus who who we often know by his Greek name, Xerxes. He calls for his queen. He calls for Queen Vashti. He's hosting a large drunken party. She's hosting a different party. He calls her to leave her party, come to his and parade herself for his guests as an object of their drunken, lustful entertainment. And she refuses to come. And he is enraged And he's talked by his advisors into deposing her for the rest of her life. He will never see her again. So now as chapter 2 opens up, four years have passed since chapter 1. We see that because the text tells us chapter 1 is in the third year of his reign. The text tells us that chapter 2 is in the seventh year of his reign. So four years have gone by. This is after Xerxes' failed invasion of Greece. He has come home a failure. One of the most colossal military failures in all of history. It says, when the, king, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti. What she had done, what had been decreed against her. So four years after losing his temper in a drunken fit and divorcing his wife, after coming home embarrassed, humiliated, defeated in battle, after, history tells us, Attempting to seduce his sister-in-law. And when she resisted his advances. He murdered both her and her husband. His own brother. After all of this. He finds himself lonely and depressed. He still has other wives and concubines. But he remembers Vashti. Perhaps his most favored. Perhaps his most beautiful. Of all of his possessions. All of his women. He remembers her. Usually when the Bible uses that language, it's using it in a positive way. It's not, so, it's not so great coming from Ahasuerus. But he also remembered, it says, what had been decreed against her. There's a pattern we see with Ahasuerus. He never takes responsibility for anything. He doesn't remember Vashti and what he had done to her in a drunken rage. He remembers what happened to her. He never takes responsibility for anything. So he calls his advisors, again, because this man never does anything on his own. That's one of the, uh, the great ironies in the book of Esther. It's one of the, the great things showing us the foolishness of this man who, who's the ruler of the entire world, but he can never make a single decision. And so he calls for his advisors again. And they say this in verse 2, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let them gather all the beautiful young virgins into the harem. Surely in this vast empire, one of them can replace Vashti. He won't feel so sad. Verse 3, and let the king appoint officers in the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. So that's, that's what they advise him to do, gather all the young virgins of the empire into the harem. Well, this has a lot more to do with human trafficking than it does a beauty pageant. All the most beautiful young virgins in the empire. This empire that stretches, we're told, from Africa to India. These young virgins are probably 13 to 18 year olds primarily, taken from their homes like a bunch of cattle and brought to the harem. This is devastating. This is devastating to these women. Some of them surely do not know that it is. It's devastating to their families, although surely some of the families didn't realize that. It's devastating to the men of their cities who surely did realize it. Because these women are now off the market. There's now way too many men and not enough eligible women. It is a terrible thing to do to your kingdom and your empire this is all being done just for one night with the king and then they're going to be kept in the harem for the rest of their lives now again surely some of them were gathered somewhat against their will they did not want to go it was just you're young you're beautiful you're a virgin you're coming and that's all there is to it the king says so but just as surely some of them perhaps many of them were excited to go They wanted to go. They were eager to go. There were families were eager for them to go. They saw in this the possibility of status, of potential wealth. These women were going to be well cared for for the rest of their life. The the harem wasn't jail. It wasn't prison. They weren't sequestered from the entire world. The only thing they couldn't do is they could never marry another man. They belonged to the king. They were his property. (laughs) So this is what the advisors suggest. I, I know you miss her. I know you've got all these other wives and concubines, but you miss Vashti. It's a shame that had to happen. Just go take all the most beautiful young girls from the entire empire and spend one night with each one of them and then pick your favorite. Surely that'll make you feel better. And verse four says, this pleased the king. Well, I'm sure it did. Whatever feelings of remorse he might have felt, whatever humbling might have happened with him and regretting what he had done with Vashti and certainly his great military humbling, that's all now forgotten. His lust is freshly ignited. And he goes, yeah, I think this is a good plan. And really this is the best the unbelieving heart can hope for. Incapable of true repentance The unregenerate human heart can only go to, how can I avoid feeling the feelings that I'm feeling? How can I avoid feeling this guilt? How can I avoid feeling this shame? How can I cover it up with something else? The problem is, we never can ignore our guilt and shame for very long. We can do it for a while. We can hide it for a while. We can cover it temporarily, but we can never remove our guilt. We can never remove our shame. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse our conscience from the stain of sin. But Ahasuerus doesn't have that. So this is the best he can do. Let's bring a huge group of beautiful women here. And let me satisfy myself with them. And the scene shifts now from the court of Ahasuerus to this little Jewish family living in the citadel of Susa. Remember, we talked about last week, King Cyrus, some 50 plus years earlier, had said the Jews could return to Judah. They could return to their homeland. They could return to the worship of their God. He even gave money and military support to help them in this process. And yet many had chosen not to do so. And so they remained exiles living in this pagan land. And that's what we see here in verse five. There was a Jew. And Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at. When her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. Three times in verses five and six, we see this expression carried away. And so the author wants us to know these are exiles, that the Hebrew here can can go either way. It can be that, that Mordecai himself was carried away in the exile, that he was among those exiles physically carried away, or it could be that one of his ancestors was carried away. We don't know for sure, but we know, the author wants us to know, these are exiles. They've been forcibly taken from their homes. They are strangers in a strange land. They do not belong here. Verse seven tells us Esther is an orphaned child, and Mordecai, her older cousin, adopted her. And we we just get this feeling as this is interjected into the story, and these characters are introduced. They're on their own. They're strangers in a strange land and it's just the two of them. This orphan girl and her kindly uncle who has adopted her. It's a a family acquainted with tragedy and loss. But the author makes it clear they belong to the people of God. That's why we get this lineage for Mordecai. As we're, as we're hearing this lineage of Mordecai and we hear that name Cush, especially this, this first audience of this book, these Jewish readers, they see that name Kish and they say, well, I know who this guy is. And I know whose line he's in. Kish is the name of, of King Saul's father. And this is a subtext that's going to play out through the story of, of Esther as it goes. So here are these two people identified for us as as a part of God's chosen people, but they are completely assimilated into a pagan culture. We see this descendant of King Saul, but his name's Mordecai. It's a Babylonian name. It means man of Marduk, worshiper of Marduk. Marduk, the Babylonian god. So we get this weird juxtaposition. Why is King Saul's descendant Named after Marduk, the Babylonian god. And then we meet Esther, another Babylonian name. It tells us Hadassah, but that's Esther. Esther, a Babylonian name for Ishtar, the goddess of love and war. We find out just how Persianized they are because in verse 10 it tells us Mordecai commanded Esther not to tell anyone that they were Jews. Not to tell anyone what their lineage was. So we're introduced to these two individuals. And then in verse 8, the scene shifts back again. It just had interjected to tell us of them. The king's decree is being carried out. The citadel of Susa is now overflowing with beautiful young women. History tells us more than a thousand of the most beautiful young women from across this empire were brought to the citadel of Susa, brought to the king. And Esther is one of these beautiful young virgins. Verse seven tells us she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. We we get this double description. The author goes out of his way to give this double description of her physical beauty, her face. And he says her body draw attention. Verse 8, when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, when many young women were gathered to Susa the citadel in the custody of Hegai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Hegai, who had charge of the woman. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her. Enters young women to the best place in the harem. So we, we we get a picture already. Life's not so terrible for Esther here in, in the palace. We can see how it would be desirable. She's she's quickly moved into the harem. She she quickly finds favor with Hegai, the eunuch in charge of the whole harem. She begins to receive special treatment from him, and it tells us this wasn't by accident. Of course, we know God's providence is at work behind all of this, but it says she won his favor. This is not passive on Esther's part. This is active. Esther, Esther is doing something to win the favor of this eunuch, to advance. And yet as we pull back, we see that it's God behind all of it. Whatever Esther's doing to win his favor, it's actually God giving her favor. This word favor, the Hebrew word said. It's the same word as God's covenantal faithfulness to his people. We, we understand that God is turning people's hearts in Esther's favor. Verse 15 says Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all that saw her. So she, she wins the favor of, of this eunuch who's in charge of all the women. She starts to get special treatment from him. But apparently she has favor with all the other people as well. So nobody's mad at her. Nobody's jealous of her. Nobody thinks she's the worst Everyone in this pagan palace looks on her with favor. But then the text tells us in verse 10 Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Mordecai told her, Okay, you go. You go do this, but don't let them know that you're a Jew. We don't know why. The, the author in the book of Hebrews is one of the things that's very troubling at times as we read the book of Hebrews because the author, or of, not of Hebrews, of Esther. Why did I say Hebrews? I was getting ready to commit heresy, and you were all going to let it happen. I not see anybody but Christy giving me the eyeball saying, Don't do it. The author of Esther just tells us, he doesn't comment when there's wickedness. He doesn't tell us the motivations. We're just left with the actions of people. We don't know why Mordecai did it. Was it fear? Was it shame? We, we, don't, we don't know other than there would be no real cause for fear uh, in this situation. Here's what we do know. We know that her not revealing her identity means she is definitely not going to be obeying God's law in the midst of this whole process. We don't know what their lives were like leading up to this moment but we know at this moment there's not going to be any obeying of the law of God. Not the dietary law of God. Not the Sabbath law of God. Not the sexual law of God. She is attempting to marry a pagan which is strictly forbidden in the law of God. So whatever it's been like before this at this moment for Esther and Mordecai the God of Israel seems wholly inconsequential it's as if Mordecai is saying to Esther as she goes we are on our own God is not going to help us in this we, you don't tell anybody who you are our God our people our identity that's in our past I'm son of Marduk you are named after Ishtar you're not Hadassah you're Esther if we're going to make it we're going to have to do it ourselves it's you and I these are not people operating in faith. These are not people operating in faithfulness. But as we will see in this story, God remains faithful. There's such encouragement for us here because our lives look like this often. Our lives look like the book of Esther so often. And yet God is faithful. Verse 12, when the turn came for each one, young woman to go to, the king, to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, so this was a regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. So, so to, it's a 12-month process. You're brought into the harem. You are, you, you are in a living in a spa for 12 months of treatments for your one night with the king. ointments to soften the skin, to moisturize the skin, to lighten the skin, because dark skin was considered undesirable. They want to make sure you smell just right. Makeup had already been fully developed in this day. It was, it was a science developed and protected by the Persian priests. It was, it was believed that it brought them closer to the gods. And so the women are, are trained in all of this. Doing everything they can to be physically perfect. They're also trained in the royal customs. They're also trained in, in etiquette. Just for their one night with this king. Verse 13, when the young women went to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shahazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. I will try to be sensitive in how I address this. This is a really scandalous, sordid, disgusting scenario that is being played out in this story. This is a contest that is being held where each woman, each girl, for some of them, spends one night with the king. She goes in a virgin and she does not come out one. She comes out a concubine we, we know of this king of his unbridled perversion. This is not a noble, we'll have a nice dinner, I'll hear about your family. That is not what this king was about. That is not what this contest was about. Now, now, she would be well provided for as a concubine for the rest of her life. She would never be allowed to marry. But if the king never called on her again by name, she was never with him again. That meant no children. If she became pregnant on this one night during this contest, that child was not considered a royal heir. What we know about this king, about King Xerxes, was he was not in the habit of remembering names. He was in the habit of adding names. We see that here as he sends this edict through the empire to bring more and more people. These women would be forgotten by him. Again, this is a terrible thing to do to your empire. You're taking away women from their homes and families. Again, as as we, we see here and we will see, it's not a terrible life for them as far as earthly comforts go. They're not slaves, but it is a grave injustice to these women, to their families, to all the men. There are now not enough women for them to marry. And it's also Xerxes, so King Ahasuerus could spend one night with them. Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. There's been a lot done to sanitize this story. Many, many, many uh, religious scholars through the years will go, this is a very sordid affair. We know this was a very wicked man, but Esther didn't play into all that. Hundreds of pages have been written on this, but here's the reality. Esther's headed for a one-night stand with the king. It is not against her will. She's not being forced. She has her best outfit on. She has her makeup and her perfume perfect. She goes in carrying secrets given to her by the chief eunuch to give her an upper hand on everyone else in the contest. Verse 16 says when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace the king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti and then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave royal gifts and gave gifts with royal generosity. So Esther enters into an empire-wide sex contest and she wins it. Isn't that romantic? Isn't this the lovely story we've all, we've all known Esther to be? It's dark. We're told here the king loved Esther more than all the other women. Well, surely that means he really is a good guy. Surely that means this really is a noble thing. No, it's not biblical love. It's not self-sacrificing love. It's not even romantic love. He found her valuable. She made a major impression on him. And Notice it doesn't say, and that very night he released all the concubines and wives of the harem and devoted himself only to Queen Esther. No, that's not happening. He's keeping all the women. He's keeping all the women. History tells us Xerxes insatiable lust never abated his entire life it in fact resulted in his murder this this was a profoundly wicked man this is a profoundly wicked contest and every single person involved in it is sinning against a holy God so what on earth is going on with this book Esther is such a weird story it's such a strange story. We haven't even gotten to the real carnage yet. This is such a, a bizarre... It's so bizarre that in the VeggieTales version of Esther, Bob the Tomato, apparently in protest, doesn't even show up in the story. <laughs> he wants no part of it. He's like Martin Luther. I want no part of Esther. There's no moral clarity at all in this story. Ahasuerus is terrible. And zero statements are ever made in this book about his wickedness. Nothing he does is ever condemned. Esther and Mordecai are supposed to be the good guys, but they appear thoroughly paganized, thoroughly Persianized. Even having names of of worship and veneration to Babylonian gods. They shouldn't be in Susa in the first place. They don't obey the law of God. They don't keep the Sabbath. They don't obey the food laws. She's having a one night stand contest and winning it with the king. She marries a pagan. They're hiding the fact that they are God's people. And later in the story, we will see a rather concerning amount of bloodlust in young Esther. We haven't even gotten to Haman yet. Haman who attempts the genocide of the entire Jewish race. And yet in all of the wickedness in this book, God's plan is being carried out perfectly. Everything went according to plan. God is working in and through each person's decisions and actions to fulfill his eternal purposes. Not in spite of their actions, through them. It is all playing out the way God intends for it to play out. The the book of Esther is a display of God's sovereignty over human actions. Everything in this story has to happen exactly the way it happened for the next event to happen and the next event to happen and the next event to happen. Why did did Ahasuerus throw a huge, drunken, sprawling six-month party? Well, on the one hand, it's because God ordained it. That's why. And on the other hand, It's because this wicked king wanted to show off his power. He wanted to get people fired up for the invasion of Greece. Why did he invade Greece? Well, on the one hand, it's because God ordained it. And it's also true that he did it because he wanted to, because he was power hungry and he was concerned by by the Greek empire's growing power. Why did he fail when he should have won? He had the most powerful, largest army in the world and he was, he was ultimately thwarted by people who never should have been able to. On the one hand, it's because God ordained it. God brought him down. And it's also true that events conspired together to cause him to fail. The, the Greeks were strategic in battle in the way the Persians were not prepared for. The weather played a huge role in it. Why did Vashti refuse to come to his banquet when he sent for her to come? On the one hand, it's because God ordained it. That's how God ordained it to happen for his good purposes to be accomplished. And it's also true that she had reasons for not coming. She decided not to come. It doesn't tell us what those reasons are. Why were Esther and Mordecai in Susa instead of Jerusalem? Because God ordained it. And also because they had become Persianized and secular. They apparently did not want to return to Jerusalem. Why was Esther so physically attractive? Because God ordained it. Apparently she ate better than I do. She cultivated her beauty. Why did Esther win the favor of the eunuch and then the king? Because God ordained it. And she did some stuff, right? She she did some things to win the favor of the eunuch. The eunuch gave her inside information for the king. Whatever it was that went down on her one night with the king, she won his favor. We'll see this a hundred more times in this book. Humans make choices, but when we pull back, we see that God is the one working out his plan in the midst of it. Our God is sovereign. That means Christian. Christian. Anything that happens to you, good or bad, must pass through his hands first. There are no accidents with God. There is no luck. There is no happenstance. God rules in complete and absolute power and control over all things. God has decreed all that has ever happened, all that ever will happen. He brings about all things for his purposes, through his perfect will and timing. And here's what we need to know. His purposes are always good. Some people say that's an indictment of God. If you say that, it's not an indictment of God. His purposes are good. We just don't understand. We don't, have the, we don't have the wisdom that he has. We don't have the knowledge that he has. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 9 says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purposes. The sovereignty of God is a sweet doctrine for Christians. Wherever we find ourselves, whatever we have to deal with, we can know that God in his infinite wisdom has designed it for our good. To make us like Christ. To bring himself glory. It means that it's no accident, friend, that you are where you are. That you're in the circumstance you're in. God has a perfect plan. Your family, where you live, your friends or your lack of friends. Your weaknesses, the mistakes you've made, the bad decisions that you have made. None of those are accidents to God. Your failures with your family, your failures with your spouse, with your children, the things you wish you could get in a time machine and go back and do it all differently. The most painful experiences in your life, none of those are accidents to God. God in his sovereignty even works through our sins. Maybe you totally blew it. Maybe you feel like your sin has ruined your life. Maybe you are suffering the long-term consequences of your sin. Christian, remember this. There are no accidents with God. And the issue of God's sovereignty is a controversial one. And the reason it's controversial is because we love the idea of our so-called free will. We are committed to it. On an intense level. The reason we're so committed to it. Is because we really love ourselves. And trust ourselves above all else. Even above God. Any Christian you talk to. Any Christian you ask. Believes that God directs. The paths of galaxies. But many of those same Christians. Are offended by the thought of him. Directing human decisions. We don't have a problem saying. God controls history. Yes and amen. All Christians believe that. It's when we get down to what does that actually mean then? What does it mean that God controls history? Because to say that God controls history is to say that God controls the human beings who make history. John Calvin said, God does not throw down men at random into the earth to do whatever they please, but he guides all by his secret purpose. Well, What about all the evil that goes on in the world? What about all the evil that's gone on in history? What about all the evil that's going on now? Are people responsible for the evil that they do? The answer is absolutely they are. Yes, they are. But that's not all that's going on. God is using their evil for his good purposes. It did not surprise him. God didn't go, well, this was outside the plan. Let's make lemonade out of these lemons. God's never reactionary. Look at the story of Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers. The book of Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 says this. As for you, you meant evil against me. Speaking of these wicked brothers who sold him into slavery. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's the same event. Joseph being sold into his slavery, which we can all agree is an evil thing to do to your brother. He says the brothers meant it for evil and God knows that. They are culpable before God. They're responsible for God for their evil actions and their evil intentions driving those evil actions. But he says God meant something in it too. God meant it for good. Same word. You meant it. God meant it. That that is pointing towards why did this happen? Well, it happened because you meant it to happen. Also, it happened because God meant it to happen. That's what we see here. The brothers purposed sin. God purposed good all in the same event. The Bible's not afraid to show us that. The Bible's not afraid to show us God's sovereign rule over evil. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 6, I'm the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these things. Lamentation 3, verse 37. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? These are passages in our Bible and it is God speaking in the first person. We can't throw them out. But we know this, in all of this, God doesn't violate his holiness. God never forces anyone to sin, nor would God ever need to force anyone to sin. People do exactly what they want to do when they are sinning. And in the story of Esther, we see this playing out. People making decisions, doing the things that they want to do. But it is all according to the purpose of God. We will certainly see that play out. When we come to the wicked character of Haman, who we haven't yet met met yet in the story. But even his lineage and Mordecai's lineage points us to the fact that God is doing something uh, of eternal consequence in the decisions that these people are making. For time's sake, I won't get into it. But we see this over and over in Scripture. Divine sovereignty on the one hand, human responsibility on the other as twin truths. God is involved in all human actions, including evil. And if that doesn't fit in with your theology, then you've got a bunch of passages in the scripture you just have to throw out. We just read a couple of them, but let me just point you to this. The greatest evil act in all of history, the unjust murder of the morally perfect Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost says this, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man is tested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, it's the predetermined plan of God for Christ to be crucified. And yet you, men of Israel, you did this. You nailed him to a cross. They were guilty for their actions, yes. And their actions were by the predetermined plan of God. In chapter four of Acts, we see a similar thing. Chapter four, verse 27. Truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, they all killed Jesus. They were doing exactly what they wanted to do. But they were also doing exactly what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place, we're told. So were they guilty? Were they responsible for their actions? Well, of course they were. But it was all according to God's predestined plan. Again, that's, that's just language straight from Scripture. It's language we cannot throw out. This, and this realization of God's involvement in this it didn't cause the apostles to doubt God's goodness. Well, God could never, that was an evil action. God could never have done that. God can't be involved in that. It didn't cause them to be, all. on the other hand, resigned to fatalism or complacency. Well, I guess if God does whatever he wants to do, then what's the point? Why pray? Why preach? Why do anything? No, on the contrary, it was a huge motivation for them. This is what motivated these men. The next verse in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, it continues on and says, And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal. and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What did the knowledge of God's sovereignty do for them? The the knowledge that even the worst things that ever happened in the whole world, the worst things that that could happen to them, that God had purpose in it. What did it do? It made them bold in the face of persecution because they understood God's sovereignty. They, They understood that God was sovereign even in our suffering, that it wasn't meaningless, that it wasn't purposeless. They understood that God was sovereign in salvation. And these are the truths that sustain and empower God's people. Daniel chapter four, verse 35 says, he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done when we consider the sovereignty of God? It is not some ivory tower mental exercise. If the sovereignty of God, if all, if all it is to you is something to argue with people about, then you're missing the whole point. Christian, this is where hope is found. This is where peace is found. Charles Spurgeon said the sovereignty of God is a soft pillow you can lay your head down when you go to bed at night. God is governing all the universe. God is governing all of history. God is governing, even Christian, your own life towards a certain goal. And that goal is to unite all things to himself in Christ Jesus. And everything that God does in accomplishing this goal is good. If we can understand that, that it is for our good, all of it. Oh, what peace is found there. The life of satisfaction in God is the life that trusts his sovereignty. And believer, here's what we have to do. We we won't wrap our minds fully around it. How do we wrap our minds around the tension of people doing what they want to do, but it being God's eternal plan? But God not forcing them to do those things, but they had to have done those things or else. I mean, in the case of Christ's crucifixion, we'd all be going to hell. God wasn't gambling with that on free will. I, hope they, I really hope they make this terrible decision so that not everyone goes to hell in all of creation. No, God's not gambling. God's accomplishing his good purposes even through the wickedness of men. We can't fully wrap our minds around this, but here's what we can do. We can submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God. We can say, you are and I'm not. We can rejoice in it. This is theology, saints. We can sing, whate'er my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er He does and follow where He guideth. Though sorrow, death, or need be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I give it all. We can sing this truth. We can be comforted by it. See your trials. See your struggles. See your suffering in light of God's sovereign eternal plan. It won't make you feel happy when tragedy strikes. But you will have peace. Let it motivate you to boldness. In the life of faith. Let it push you towards. Let it inform your prayer. Because God is sovereign and because he has given us access to. To his very throne, we can come to him in prayer, making bold prayers that he would save, that he would transform, that he would redeem, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. We can make these prayers because a sovereign God is able to do them. Let me give you confidence in sharing the gospel. The Lord knows who are his and he will save them through his word proclaimed and preached. Let it cause you to trust in God's goodness, even when you can't see it in the moment, even when when all around you looks dark. Let it cause you to trust him beyond what your eyes can see. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth, Lord. Even as we look at at, at this passage in, in Esther and this whole story, Lord, which in your sovereignty, in your wisdom, you have. You have given to us exactly the way you want it. And so we don't get all the answers in the book itself, but we, we read this book in light of all that you have revealed to us in your word of who you are and how you are working in this world. And, and in, in that, Lord, we see your hand, your sovereign hand of providence guiding all things. And it reminds us and it encourages us that your hand is just as active in our lives as it was in the events of this book, as it has been in the book of Acts, it has been in any event in history, your hand is just as active in our lives and none can stay your hand and none can say to you, what have you done? And so we rest in you. We rejoice in you. We trust in you. Make us a people, Lord, who who live our lives in light of these truths, that we would live in hope and confidence and peace and joyful worship, we pray in Jesus name. Amen.